Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast and it's been a little while since we've done a book review. It has and uh, we've we've literally just done one haven't we Yes Tom? we've just come out of our <laughs> famous staff book club, ITE book club where all of our friends from the initial teacher education team uh, choose a book to read and get together and discuss it and it's another offering from the mighty Daisy Christodoulou. It is and this was your recommendation Tom and you had yes. some very good kind of foresight. <laughs> yeah. uh, last time we met we were in the middle of lockdown weren't we for book club so we had lockdown book club and uh, we had to think about a recommendation that would be our first book club of the new academic year and Tom had just read so this is kind of uh, personally quite convenient for you Tom because you'd already read Teachers versus Tech The Case for an Ed Tech Revolution by Daisy Christodoulou and you recommended it as the first book of our new academic year. Yeah now some listeners may be surprised to hear that I uh, spent my money on another Daisy Christodoulou book after I was perhaps a little less than complimentary about uh, possibly her most famous uh, book to date Seven Myths About Education. I also actually bought it before COVID-19 was a thing. I, I bought it before any of this lockdown stuff yet, but it's uh, it's proved to be quite a useful buy. And I, I mean, without giving too many spoilers away, I, I stand by a lot of my, in fact, all of my reservations about Seven Myths about Education, you know, influential though it's been. But I would say that uh, Teachers versus Tech addresses a number of those issues that I had. And, and the book comes across as a lot more balanced and, and a lot better in terms of being a primer on the kind of education technology scene, even though it's written by somebody who is now running an ed tech company and obviously has got things to sell in this in this field. <laughs> you definitely gave away some spoilers there, Tom. I think before we get uh, into the nitty gritty of our book review, and of course that's no substitute for going out and buying it and reading it yourselves. Obviously, form your own opinions would be uh, you know our, our first recommendation. But we were a bit organised this time, and we did some recording of our book club. So what what you're going to hear first of all is an overview of this book by our lovely Dr Judith Neen. She's looking at the use of technology within education. She starts off by looking at how we learn so there is a strong focus uh, on the, the she calls it the science of learning to start with so cognitive mm. science and that in order to probably to understand how technology can support that learning. So she's uh, fundamentally, she's got this how we learn um, as the foundation of it all. And then she looks at various aspects of, of te technology. Um, the, the second chapter is she talks about personalised learning and how re what personalised learning means and, and how realistic it is. And she also looks at things like smart devices as well and, and how we, we use smart devices uh, within uh, education. And there is a sort of message that came across to me that technology, and, and it probably wouldn't be any surprise, that technology has potential within education, but it doesn't live up to the promise so far of what it offers that uh, we've constantly been offered a certain amounts of promise so she uses the example she uses quite an, an easy example of interactive whiteboards and says you know these these there was huge investments and they were going to be the w next wonderful thing and and it didn't come off and she sort of looks in at that so it's i found it an interesting look at it made me think about technology um and how we use technology Okay, so we've got a bit of an overview there and the sort of angle that Daisy Christodoulou has taken with this book. You've already given us a little bit of an insight, Tom, but what were your kind of top takeaways or what was your kind of instinctive feeling after you'd finished reading this book? I remember you being quite infused by it. Yeah, I was. I, I felt that... <laughs> Obviously, it's a very, very topical question at the moment, the question of education technology. It's been topical for a while, but it suddenly became relevant to absolutely everybody uh, once we went, in, went into COVID-19 lockdown. And to some extent, I suppose the, the tech genie has been popped out of the bottle very, very quickly. You know, we've all ended up having to do some sort of online teaching. 
the question's been hanging over the education world for years and years now, you know, to what extent can we or should we as teachers replace bits of what we do with technology? And you have some people who are very, very pro-technology, you know, will tend to use it if it's there. Um, perhaps a little bit uncritically. You get some people, of course, going the other way. You get people basically saying, I'm not having any devices out in my room. Thank you very much. And I think my initial concerns were that coming from an author who is very much seen as on the traditionalist end of things and, and you know spent a whole chapter of Seven Myths kind of uh, trying to explode this myth that teachers all believe that the kids are just googling things now and, and can get on with having loads of fun instead of learning facts and all of that that we were going to get something very anti-tech actually although I knew she was running a tech company I thought we were going to get you know whole chapters on why we, we should be not touching devices and all that kind of thing so I think the two things I liked the most on a sort of broad brush basis were the fact that she is balanced in in setting out these arguments she does kind of you know try to lay out her own biases and things like that and I also felt that her her summaries although I do I always twitch when people reduce things down to little summaries in boxes the summaries were were pretty good and pretty balanced actually you know if you are in such a hurry that you don't even want to read a relatively short chapter yeah it's worth mentioning so at the end of each chapter she crunches everything down and, and synthesizes it into a into a, a summary which we're going to use throughout uh, this episode just as talking points and again you can then go and delve a bit deeper into that chapter if you want to read a little bit more but I, I think her, her angle with this book this was my sort of gut reaction was a sensible one particularly when thinking about student teachers who you know really are for many of them novices at the start of an IT program because the angle that she takes is that you know the first chapter is all about how children learn with a view to then look at how technology can support that process and can work in tandem um, with what we know particularly from the field of cognitive science about how children learn. And I think this is an important one, an important message for anyone out there working uh, with student teachers and for student teachers yourselves, is that, you know, there there might be uh, an assumption that a student teacher who is from the generation who has been kind of embroiled in tech since, you know, since they came from (laughs) their mother's womb you know they came out with a a smartphone in their hands and so they're going to be able to you know turn up in our classrooms and they'll be really au fait with tech when actually you know our work has taught us that that really isn't necessarily the case and even if it is the case even if they do have a lot of tech skills and a lot of confidence where tech is concerned they haven't necessarily asked themselves is this the right tech for the content that I'm trying to deliver, for the concept that I'm trying to teach, for the ped, you know, how do I match pedagogy with this tech, and how does tech complement the pedagogy? How does it match the assessment? And and that's a, a really kind of big overriding kind of theme I think that comes through from Daisy in this book, is you know how do we allow it to complement what we already know about how children learn, about how teachers already operate in the classroom. Yeah, this is vital actually because student teachers, you know, you don't you don't want to generalize about student teachers, but generally speaking, they're they're in their early to mid-20s student teachers. So generally speaking, they're reasonably comfortable with technology. And there has been a sort of culture change in initial teacher education, particularly over here in Wales, that, that the expectation of schools is that student teachers will bring fresh new ideas. We love that change of culture because you know that slightly old school send them to me and I'll, you know, mould them in my image kind of model is quite flawed and, and we're quite glad to see the back of that that sort of one side view of things. However, you know, we have heard noises of people saying, oh, it's going to be the student teachers. The student teachers are going to save the day. They know about tech. All the schools trying to get to grips with remote teaching and learning and teaching online. The student teachers will save the day. And actually, that is an enormous amount of pressure on student teachers who, let's not forget, may know their way around a smartphone or whatever, but may have never been in a classroom before and I know that our good friends at Impact Wales it is don't they say um, pedagogy before platform 
the pedagogy is absolutely vital. It's the big bit of our professional teaching standards. And and so that that temptation that is always there to try and mould what you're doing around the shiny, shiny toys, we've all got to watch out for that. Yes, the student teachers may very well be able to help with the technology, but unless we know what we're doing in terms of the learning and what we want to achieve, that's that's not going to work. So this could be a marriage made in heaven, but only if we've got reasonable expectations of everybody involved, I think. Yeah. And indeed, you know, Krista Dulu uh, brings in some really great research from the field of, of how ed tech has already been applied, but also about what we know about learning to help fuel her arguments. And there's, there's one that I've just found in the book that really kind of emphasises what Tom's talking that, about there, about novices, particularly novice teachers. She's using it in the context of student self-assessment, and it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. This comes from uh, the work of, of Kruger and Dunning from 1999, um, which says uh, this paper finds that to make good decisions about our own competence in a particular area, we need to already possess a degree of competence in that area. So, you know, again, you know, it's just a- another argument to, to support this point that a student teacher might be really, really up on and competent in the area of tech and therefore might be able to make good decisions about how to use that app, but they won't necessarily have the ability and the competence to make good decisions about pedagogy. So that's just a nice kind of way of, of, of supporting that from the book. Yeah, I love this point actually that she brings in that, that, you know, the less you know about stuff, the less accurately you're able to assess your, your ability in it. I mean, this is slightly off the point, isn't it, about self-assessment and AFL and all of that kind of thing. But it reminds me of that point that John Hattie makes in his book. I think it's visible learning feedback and I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm going to probably butcher it to death. But he basically says that pupils in the classroom receive an enormous amount of feedback uh, informally from their peers and vast kind of swathes of it are completely rubbish i think it's really important for us to to kind of have reasonable expectations there yeah she she brings in a lot more research actually in this book doesn't she one of our kind of issues with seven myths was that although she made a lot of very very trenchant points there was not an enormous amount of academic literature backing it up whereas in this one we can't we couldn't level that accusation out so there are there are really good kind of extensive reference lists there which would would mean that if you wanted to you could go and and read it much more widely about some of the things that she necessarily has to kind of crunch down into quite sort of simple quick things yeah and she she's talking about this Dunning-Kruger effect and and you know how you need more competence to to spot your own incompetence (laughs) if that makes sense in the context of how technology can be used to personalize learning this is her second chapter And she actually says, she talks about how difficult differentiation is in practice when you're live in the classroom. We'd love to be able to split ourselves. I talk about this all the time on this podcast, but being able to clone ourselves so we can get around and give bespoke feedback and work individually with pupils um, because they're not going to be learning and progressing at the same rate. And she talks about this is where where technology actually can be really helpful. So she she says that we can personalise based on insights from adaptive learning platforms. So this allows us to focus on the details of the curriculum content content and instruction, making it possible to spot misconceptions. And there are numerous apps that have been out there for quite some time now. She gives the example of Duolingo, which is the languages app that has very advanced algorithms that help to kind of spot the sorts of questions that you've gotten wrong on multiple occasions. She also talks about how many of these apps actually support some of the research that's out there, and maybe there needs to be more research into this, about um, spaced practice, about how they'll introduce questions at the appropriate sort of interval that will have uh, more sticking power. And again, this links to educational theory, the Ebbinghaus um, forgetting curve about how in certain intervals of time you are likely to, you're more likely to forget this kind of notion of short-term cramming. So we 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 think that we've learned something really well when in fact we've just crammed it and we we've we've deceived ourselves. The best way to do it is to kind of space out our practice, and it's it's more likely to have um, longer-term memory sticking power. I probably butchered that uh, theory. <laughs> 
but um, she's talking about technology that can really support what we know uh, about about how we can make long-term memories stick. And this is where I suppose we have to kind of always pause and and consider the nature of we always say our subject don't we at secondary but the nature of what it is that you're teaching because a lot of this stuff is to do with knowledge and knowledge is a very big buzzword at the moment Uh, you hear a lot about knowledge organizers you hear you know for example in seven myths Daisy Christodoulou is trying to kind of raise the status of knowledge back up from this sort of perceived hole that it got dropped in and this is where I think she does a better job of of kind of showing her own sort of subject angle biases, uh, but where we need to always address these things uh, with our subject nuances. It's absolutely true that some subjects are very big on knowledge. Some subjects are very sort of linear in terms of you need this before you can do this. Other subjects, you know, it's slightly less that way. And, And so... Yeah, these adaptive quizzes and things could potentially be a great efficiency saver, but you you have to know kind of to what extent they are the end and to what extent they're the means to the end. And I suspect that's probably different depending on the context. I think it is. And she she does well, actually. Well, she did for me at putting those theories into context so if we take memorization and quizzing as an example like she talks about we can use technology to make memorization as fun as possible we can use technology to make it as efficient as possible but we can't use technology to eliminate memory unless we want to eliminate something that makes us human so I really like that point, but she, she gives a really nice example of memorization, how you could use technology to quiz pupils on something in English that's then going to free up their working memory when they're looking at something new for the first time and they can make some really interesting insights or inferences about um, what they've learned. So she gives the example of teaching her pupils about the lover's triangle in A Midsummer Night's Dream. If you are unfamiliar with A Midsummer Night's Dream then you definitely need to to watch that (laughs) at some stage but just all you need to know is that there is a love triangle And it's actually quite complicated to remember it or to understand it when you're reading or even if you're watching the playtext for the first time. So what she said that she used to do was to teach that separately to her people. So they'd memorise the love triangle. And through the course of the play, um, a potion is put on the eyes of the lovers. Everything goes wrong. And at the end, this love potion is lifted. So the, 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 the people who should be in love with one another Um, everything is restored basically however one of the lovers does not have this potion removed from his eyes and therefore you know isn't with the person who he would have chosen in the first place so you see this is a bit of a detour but ultimately what it then allowed her pupils to do was when they encountered this moment in the text at the end because they'd memorized this love triangle they were able to really make a deep inference about you know what they thought what their opinion was of you know, at this moment for this character and the fact that he wasn't with the person who he chose of his own free will. So technology and these apps that allow us to use these these quizzes for kind of low stakes testing to build up these memories can be really helpful actually in helping our learners to engage in deeper learning and understanding of whatever it is they're studying. Yeah, and I suppose if we wanted to step away from the specific technologies, this this goes back to the sort of age-old question. I know we've wrestled with this question, which is what is the best use of that precious, precious time you have with the pupils? Which, of course, now that a lot of us are teaching remotely and under constant threat of kind of losing our classes to lockdowns and things, becomes even more pressing than it did before. So can you outsource some of that kind of content and, and knowledge gathering to something which is more efficient some sort of technology with the aim of of freeing up that time similarly i know we've we've got an expert uh, an episode on flipped learning haven't we where we very much use that as an efficiency tool to allow us to crowbar open some hours with our students to really kind of discuss and oddly enough I, i mean if i'm gonna advance a little criticism here i felt that when Krista Dulu tries to describe flipped learning, that is one of the very few moments in the book, actually, where I saw glimpses of the 
less than kind of straightforward, you know, slightly disingenuous version of Krista Dooley because I felt that she characterised flipped learning as just a way of kind of outsourcing the hard work to the, to the pupils to allow them to just kind of mess about in class. Yeah, she didn't really kind of... Uh, I mean, it was a bit of a sort of flippant reference, I thought, to flipped learning. Yeah. She did talk about, you know, a meta-analysis of flipped learning and how one of the kind of major things that came out of it was... Um, that it falls apart if the students can't engage with the pre-work that they have to do before the lesson. And, you know, I, I think what that does is it exposes how much critical thinking needs to go into any of these techniques or technologies that we choose to 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 employ and deploy in in the classroom that would be a big message to student teachers out there is you know why are you wanting to use it is it the right technology to use is the right is it the right approach what are the pitfalls what are the positives and a chapter that she deals with this issue really well in I think is where she looks at teacher expertise so the expertise of teaching and and where technology can help what she takes great pains to do in that chapter is to expose the aspects of a teacher's practice that technology really can't replicate and indeed never should so I think we can sort of sleep soundly in our beds knowing that our jobs are safe and that you know the tech robots and AI isn't going to come and steal our jobs anytime soon so what she says is you know in some ways technology can mimic expertise for example through adaptive systems that give hints and nudges to the way uh, in the same way as a teacher would she gives this lovely example of um, watching her mentor teach when she was a teacher trainee a lesson on Romeo and Juliet in a moment in the lesson where the teacher gathers all the children back in at a key moment and, and just plants a seed and then lets them go off again because she's already picked up on the you know a misconception she plants that seed they go off and they've been nudged in the right direction and, and she talks about how technology can do that but in other ways technology can't replicate this expertise she says for example the social aspects of learning teaching tacit knowledge she talks a lot about tacit knowledge and how important that is to expertise providing motivation support so I I really did applaud her for unpicking that before talking about the blind spots to teacher expertise that technology can help with so maybe if we were to kind of summarise this little bit, if, if you're a student teacher or a novice teacher you're listening, you're thinking, oh, you know, this is this is an absolute minefield. I just don't know. I know kind of kinds of tech, but I don't necessarily know kinds of pedagogy. Maybe it's time to look at your subject or your, your area of expertise. Uh, and let's give an example. I mean, you're talking about English there. And we were saying just before we started recording, English feels like the meeting place, doesn't it, between the arty stuff and the kind of knowledgey stuff. I think those of us who specialise in things like art, music, drama, for example, we would we would never want our subjects to be... Characterised as being content-free or knowledge-free, you know, and, and there is always a huge danger of people doing that. But that content and knowledge is very much tools that you gain in order to to kind of go off and apply creatively. I, I suppose other subjects like maths, like languages, it's much more kind of the, the content and the knowledge. I suppose is is more to the fore. Again, you wouldn't want to go the other way. You could probably massively offend a maths or a languages specialist by suggesting that knowledge is is the end for them. That there's there's no creative application of that knowledge. But the balance is a little bit different. English is an interesting one for me because you've got that tension at the heart of it, haven't you? And um, we've had this in in episodes before where people have kind of talked about that tension between the art nature of English and that kind of literacy side of things and and obviously you can't have one without the other but that sort of tension between the two and and the the danger that one or the other will be kind of made very much subservient to the other is always there in the background so perhaps if you're starting off thinking about this perhaps you've just started a teacher education program Maybe it's time to step back and have a really good look at your subject and work out what could we do more efficiently? What do I need space and time for? What are my absolute red lines that I must do with the pupils? And what could be happening somewhere else without me? 
I totally agree. And and I guess what tech for my subject is out there and then how does that link with all of those things that I've just listed that are really important to what are my red lines, what bits, you know, can they be quizzed on regularly that are going to really help to free up some space in their working memory for things. I mean, for me, in drama, it would be anything to do with devising. Devising is a really messy, complex process where pupils are having to call a recall you know, lots of of knowledge in order to create dramatic form with fluency, with a sense of audience and purpose. It's really complex set of skills and knowledge that are coming together um, in, in, in one activity and often in a group work context, which is collaborative. So for me, I would want my drama teachers to be asking, right, what essential knowledge do they need and, and how can technology really support that process too? And and actually, this is a point that was made by some of our colleagues at Book Club that whilst Krista Dulu gives some really great sort of general messages and some nice subject specific, some nice, there's some nice maths um, examples and some uh, quite a few English examples because that's Krista Dulu's background some of our colleagues and we'll play this in for you now picked up on some of the uh, aspects of technology and what edtech can do that are missing um from the book it was it's interesting she does have um she has um some interesting insights and the most useful stuff that i got from her was not to do with technology and i felt that she would have benefited from working with someone who knew a had a broader knowledge of, of of technology and what technology can do. I think her own knowledge of technology was quite limited in that, but she she brings out some really interesting things, like about the expertise. She talks about the expertise of the teacher and how that's so invaluable uh, within the classroom. She talks about assessment as well. I think you're right, Emma. She is an interesting chapter. And we sort of knew where she was going. I knew exactly where she was going on assessment because she's got her own company, which does comparative assessment, which is, and and that was really interesting. I wish she told, she said comparative yeah. assessment, looking at, um, so for example, you, you're looking, instead of uh, looking at your rubrics and trying to measure against rubrics, you, you measure assignments against each other. And humans are much better at making judgments like that. So if you've got two assignments against uh, uh, next to each other, you're better doing that sort of judgment. We're much more consistent um, and accurate. And she mentions actually that teacher expertise being necessary for that, uh, but also algorithms. And I wanted to know more about the algorithms and she wasn't giving anything away you know that the the judgments she mentioned that you also have various judgments that you're making on the assignments and and I wish she'd expanded on that a little bit more so she 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 brought up some really interesting things which weren't related to technology (laughs) and uh and and that so uh I suppose that was my frustration but any any other comments that I, sorry just in the same place I think there she's um, talking about something I found um, quite interesting guess the misconception so addressing questions that you would use for assessments but uh, talking from the point of where would students be tripped up by this question um, and then thinking about how that could be overcome by use of algorithms and so on and I thought that that would be an interesting place start as well wouldn't it sort of with GCSE questions and so on just thinking about okay this is the question you're going to give your students your pupils where do you see the pitfalls and Mm -hmm. and open up that discussion as well yeah so certainly from a drama perspective there you know going back to my example of devising I would want my student teachers to be thinking about how video technology and the the use of uh, of those apps that allow you to kind of video record and, and edit what they could do in capturing that devising process and what the what the pupils are learning from that process. So another big part of the book and a chapter that really did challenge some of our thinking in book club um this was one of the top takeaways for for several of us was a chapter that looked at personal devices so 
this chapter is called how how should how should we use smart devices and it was funny because i read this chapter almost the same day as i watched a, a documentary on netflix called the social dilemma which is it's very recently come out and it's all about a bunch of ex tech engineers and designers who've worked for all the heavy hitters in the world of tech who have since left those companies on the grounds of issues around ethics and the ethics of technology and this has been headed up by somebody called Tristan Harris who used to work for I believe Google and sent round at one stage because he was so concerned about the negative impact that technology in particular you know those big apps like Facebook, Google etc are having on people's well-being, mental health etc that he in the style of Jerry Maguire for those of you who've seen the seen the film stayed up late one night and wrote this big manifesto and emailed it out to the whole company they all read it it did cause a stir And then everyone went back to working exactly as they always had done. So this chapter, in this chapter, Daisy Christodoulou deals with this and her summary at the end of it, I'll read it to you. It says, devices aren't neutral. They change the way we think. Connected devices are designed to distract us and distraction is bad for learning. So we need to ban or adapt connected devices to maximise learning. What did you think about this chapter, Tom? Well, I must admit that... When I started reading this chapter, when I saw the title, my heart sank a little bit and I thought, here we go, because this is going to be, this is where, because it's such a polarised debate, isn't it? The use of of connected devices in the classroom. And I thought, here we go. It's just going to be put them in a box and bury them under the sea, you know, (laughs) and that'll be the end of the chapter. Uh, But you're right. She she did give a very balanced view. Um, This is very polarised in schools as well. You've got schools that are basing an enormous amount of their learning on the use of devices and you've got schools where literally nobody is allowed to be seen with a device and you know we could probably spend ages setting out the pros and cons of both of those quite extreme positions but there is no really really easy answer to this um they're fantastic devices when they're used well and they they're not the answer to everything and and they can become a bit of a crutch and what i really liked was that rather than kind of getting bogged down into that really polarized and quite frankly quite quite unhelpful and inconclusive debate she really got to the nub of it by saying yeah forget the debate for a minute the reason these devices are problematic is because they are designed by very very talented designers to keep us fiddling with them for as long as possible and this is something we've talked about in well-being bits of the podcast in the past doesn't it and when you get away from the kind of educational philosophy side of things uh, which is often more heat than light and just remember that these things have got apps on them that are purely designed to keep your eyes looking at them in order that these companies can continue making money, you realise the kind of root of the problem. And so I'm glad she says banned or adapted because banned is not always an option. Yeah. But adapted is a much more interesting avenue of inquiry. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's interesting, actually. She, she, I like the way she approaches this in the book. She comes up with four potential solutions, one of which is adapt connected devices. And she talks that through when she kind of looks at the different sides of that argument, you know, one of which is ban them completely. And she, it, it, in, in line with what Tom just said about adapting connected devices, she says perhaps... In the longer term, the better solution is for educators and technologists to think more seriously about designing devices that promote learning. And the best kind of learning device might be a tablet or a laptop that has no notifications as a default and that has easy to set lock modes that block the internet. And learning apps could also automatically block the internet and notifications when you're using them because she takes great pains to look at the research around the techniques that these apps deploy to distract you and indeed they they have they have learnt how to align with um, findings from psych- the world of psychology in order to tap into the way your mind works 
and to create this kind of compulsion to want to look at notifications, tapping into our need for recognition and reward with the like buttons, you know, so we post photographs, someone likes it, it, you know, almost like Pavlov's dog with the, with the bell, you know, every time we get a like, we, we then become sort of compelled to want to post every day, you know, and it's really easy to look at young people and to write them off and dismiss them and say, oh, well, they just can't regulate, they just can't self-regulate and, you know, they, they're just, they're so self-obsessed because they're, they're teenagers, they live their life on Facebook and, and Instagram and Snapchat and you know Snapchat comes under some serious flack in an article that we're going to recommend at the end of this podcast for sucking people in and making them feel like they they can't give up you know their their addiction to it and actually the the you know the tech companies as as Tristan Harris would um would advocate need to stand up and take some responsibility for the impact that they are having not only on young people um but on everyone so it's actually not that simple to just say and Daisy Christodoulou deals with it deals with this to just say actually kids just need to get better at self-regulating because I would challenge anybody to work with their phone on their desk for an hour and not be tempted to pick it up at some point and try multitask although it's not called multitasking is it Tom she talks about this in the book (laughs) yeah it's task switching isn't it yeah now this is this is an interesting one isn't it because you could ban them completely I guess I'm just going to ask sort of drop some questions in here in, in the way that I like to do you know is that the easy option well yeah sometimes you do need to do it and in the short term it's the easy option if we kind of zoom all the way back out to those big questions of what kind of people are we trying to create which of course in the Welsh education system we're trying to answer with the four purposes we're trying to create people who can function out there in the world and who can you know think about what they're doing and understand what's going on and all the rest of it if school becomes a sort of vacuum without any of these devices doing what they do are we potentially leaving an enormous blind spot for our pupils i mean yes absolutely you're going to need to enforce them being shut off from things occasionally but is it not one of our jobs to kind of open people's eyes to what's going on with those devices? Because I think all of us, when we've read these articles that say, have you realised what all these designers are doing with these red dots and these likes and these little vibrations and all the rest of it, it's been quite a memorable eye-opening moment for a lot of us. And it's helped us understand and it's helped us kind of come up with new ways of working that work for us. So it would be a shame, I I think, to, to deprive pupils of, of the opportunity to learn that while they're still in school. Absolutely, absolutely. There's that shocking moment in the Netflix uh, documentary where they talk about, you know, if you don't know, if it's not obvious what the product is, then the product is you. Um, (laughs) And it's the commodification of our attention spans. They want to keep us drawn in for as long as possible. And that that knowledge is power to our young people. And you're right, Tom, I think it's something that they need to be aware of and and that we are really open with them as well about how we find it quite difficult to to, uh, resist temptation. So the last chapter, and I just want to briefly talk about this, is about assessment. So the expertise of assessment and can technology help? And Daisy Christodoulou actually makes no bones about the fact that she is director of education at uh, a, a company called No More Marking, um, a company that provides an online comparative judgment edge engine for schools. So she talks about her own biases. But she says that she's going to kind of make a claim that comparative judgment, which I'll explain in a moment, is an exemplar of the way we can combine human and algorithmic judgment. So she basically says that, you know, when it comes to assessment, particularly those more kind of complex aspects of assessment and assessment outcomes, such as essays, can be really difficult to assess and can really fall foul of the various conscious and unconscious biases that we hold as teachers. She talks um, really compellingly about, you know, the, the the traps that teachers even really establish expert teachers. And I, and I don't know about you, Tom, but I, uh, the fear is real when you go into a moderation meeting um, because you, you never really know whether your your judgment is going to be 
as you know as exact for a six thousand word essay as the person next to you no this is an interesting wasn't it because algorithmic judgments don't exactly have a great press just at the moment as we're recording this because mm. we're recording this in the wake of the uh, a level fiasco that happened um this summer with with the covid19 lockdown i distinctly remember you telling me about this comparative judgment thing on the phone because you'd attended a, a krista dulu talk and i distinctly remember me harumphing rather a lot down the phone about how it all sounded like a load of rubbish but actually she does uh, having very laudably set out her own kind of potential conflicts of interest first i think she does make a very good kind of case for this because you're absolutely right there's enormous amounts of research that say that, that there is it's very very hard for teachers to remain unbiased no matter how experienced they are and how many things you kind of put in their way to stop them doing it and also, again, it is a massively inefficient process moderating this stuff. We've all sat through those endless moderation meetings where people get into a circular argument over 2% of something. And as she says, this is this is a fine example of where you can make things considerably more efficient. So, yeah, I found this, this chapter interesting, very interesting. Yeah, likewise. So just to kind of um, give you a clear definition of comparative judgment, it's a method of assessing open-ended tasks like essays that depends on both an algorithmic and human judgment. With comparative judgment, teachers look at two essays alongside each other and judge which one they think is better. There is no mark scheme. Now, that's probably making uh, some teachers come out in cold sweats <laughs> but she she kind of in the book she goes into a lot more depth and detail uh, about how it works and, and the problems with rubrics and mark schemes um, and she also talks about how algorithms you know have been tried and tested with essays but can be really problematic because if they detect a rule and apply that rule every time, as soon as you find out what the rule is, you can game the system. She talks about this at the end of the chapter. So it's too easy to game them um, at their own rules. So a good example she gives is, uh, you know, in long in, in extended essays, you could just repeat the same paragraph again and again and again with all of the right kind of boxes ticked uh, for, according to the rubric and get a great mark. And it has absolutely no substance or sense or what. Well, I have very non-fond memories of spending tortuous hours in music meetings back in school trying to come up with rubrics and kind of assessment systems to try and bring some fairness to the process of assessing music compositions. And, you know, you are always able to dig one out from the year group that would score next to nothing on the rubric that was really really good and equally Mm. one that you know was ticking every box but but nobody would have said it was good and so what what she's saying there is that anybody can tell you which one's better out of two different things and you don't have to be able to say why and you don't have to have a have a rubric or anything you can listen to two pieces of music pieces of composition from people's or you can read two essays it's dead easy to say which one's better. And if you do enough of those uh, in a set, then you're going to end up with a rank order, which is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And that's the, that's the problem with it I, I, that I could see is that it takes an awful lot of these comparisons to produce a reliable rank order. Yes, um, it does. Yeah. Is that, am I right in saying yeah. that? It's, it's yeah. maths. It's where we get into the maths. <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. Um, but she does talk about, you know, it's the outline liars that are really interesting so the ones where there was quite a a wide margin of error amongst a lot because then if you look at those ones that's where you can have some really good nitty-gritty conversations about you know where this sits in the rank order and why that's ended up being an outlier she gives an example of this in the book where she's got two pieces of writing one that's got a lot of technical accuracy well spelt words use of semicolons etc hyphens but in terms of content and the substance of what this child is saying it's not very advanced and then another where there are lots of spelling errors but the child is trying to use quite sophisticated language and she makes the very good point that you know you can see from comparative judgment that one is better than the other but the one that was more technically accurate came out on top so you know this is very interesting so ultimately she's talking about combining the two you know technology working with teacher judgment in order to make a fairer less biased approach to marking this type of work 
Okay, so I think Time that was summarize, a, yeah. that was a suitably uh, deep dive. Hopefully, I say that too much on this podcast. <laughs> I'm gonna have a swear jar for, for, for deep, deep dive. dive yeah. Anytime I say that ever again, I have to put a pound in the uh, deep dive box. <laughs> yeah, so so hopefully that's um, compelled you to want to give that uh, a read. Yeah, I would I would say you know in in summary with this book, I would very very happily recommend this book as a great starting point to look at some of the interesting and very very topical issues around technology i mean i'm gonna stick by what i said before i I could never comfortably recommend seven myths as as anything other than uh, you know a a spicy polemic that's going to get you thinking fine but not as you know an argument in itself it is too much bias and too much disingenuousness in that one for my liking this one while it may not go into mega mega depth that isn't necessarily what we wanted I, I could recommend this one in a good conscience to somebody who wants a good kind of balanced overview of the questions and the arguments of course you've then got to go and do the work and do the thinking off the back of it yeah and i like that about it and it's, it, it, i mean the final sentence is a real invitation which i like this you know this is as the title says a case for an ed tech revolution she says these evidence-based innovations offer the promise of a genuine educational revolution that could transform the way we learn and teach so she's talking about you know the major findings adaptive learning systems can provide more personalized teaching space repetition algorithms can make it easier for us to build long-term memories and sophisticated use of data can make assessment more precise and meaningful you know it's an invitation because she says that a lot of these things haven't got enough evidence and under their belt yet you know, this is only the start of the story so as tom says give it a read and allow it to um you know start conversations in your respective departments or whoever you whoever you are your trusted colleagues okay. so time for our short slots and i think for the first time in history we're going to uh, dig all of our short slots out of a single source which is uh, related to what we've just been talking about in fact and we have name checked him already the article is about tristan harris who uh, emma mentioned earlier on in the episode and it's it's from the atlantic and it's from a few years ago now called The Binge Breaker. It talks about his journey from being on the inside of of one of the major tech companies to realising kind of with some discomfort that some of the stuff that was going on there was perhaps not the most ethical. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Google always had this thing called, you know, don't be evil, wasn't it? Their motto. (laughs) They always used to say, don't be evil. And um, I mean, as we were saying earlier, before we started recording, any of these companies that offer things that are ostensibly free clearly it costs them money (laughs) to provide these services therefore they've got to be getting their money from somewhere and therefore that's going to be advertising and in order for advertising to work they need your attention they need you to be using whatever it is is that's there and once you understand that it's kind of blindingly obvious isn't it but it's surprising how kind of non-obvious that is until it gets pointed out and that's that's Tristan Harris's point isn't it all all through this this kind of extended interview that you need to be aware of that so that you can take some action absolutely and if you're going to take the time to read that article i would also recommend as i said earlier on the social dilemma and i think are something to try that comes from that and you know you can decide how controlled you want to make this i suppose the simple one might be one that we recommended a long time ago which is to switch off your notification badges those little red dots on your phone but another one that tom recommended to me that i must admit i haven't i haven't tried at any great length which is to switch your phone to grayscale so that all those colors aren't enticing you in make it as bland as you possibly can something that tristan harris himself does that is reported in the article we just uh, recommended is to bury those apps that are really addictive deep in folders and in sort of far distant screens on your smartphone device so that you're not going to be tempted and something else that I would recommend doing I think I'm going to try this myself um, in line with some of the research that came out of Chris Dooley's book about lectures and how distracting devices can be when you're trying to really focus in lectures. Even if you're in a, an asynchronous online lecture on the programme, try one where you've got your phone with you. And, you know, and, and 
whether that distracts you purely by being on the desk or whether you actually go into it. So try having it with you during the lecture. And maybe if you wanted to be uber kind of investigatory, you could record how many times it distracts you and then try another without having it at all and do the same thing, tally it up and see if there's a difference. Yeah, and I mean, on the subject of well-being, I mean, obviously, Tristan Harris is basically saying kind of, you know, put your phone down, turn it off, all the rest of it uh, to improve your well-being. I suppose the thing is we can't be an extremist about this stuff. I know that we've kind of said... Twitter is great sometimes and other times we've said delete your Twitter you know that was my (laughs) well-being wasn't it a couple of episodes ago delete your Twitter when Um, you were on a break when I was on a break yeah I think you know don't beat yourself up if you're using your phone a lot I use my phone a lot because I find it very useful to be able to dash off the odd email occasionally I find it very useful to be able to see what's going on and check my calendar all the rest of it without having to sit down at a computer I wouldn't want to be an extremist and entirely get rid of my phone I think just know what's going on. As long as you know what's going on, it's not going to rule you quite as much. And sometimes it's right to be away from it and with all sorts of things deleted. And sometimes it's right to be right in the thick of it, using all the apps and all the rest of it. But just don't beat yourself up either way, but do kind of know what's going on. Absolutely. Okay, so... We've reached the end of another episode in which the omnipresent man with a power tool continues to dog my life. It's probably worth it mentioning. It might not be a man with it that might not power be. tool. I do, yeah, it was a man before, wasn't it? It was. Because you, you asked him very pointedly <laughs> if he was ever going to stop. But, uh, <laughs> but we've been filming and recording an awful lot of resources at this point uh, as we're recording this, ready for the new programme. And I feel like I, I have this sort of, you know, like a witch's familiar. I feel like I'm... <laughs> My life is, I'm accompanied by men with power tools. It's just every every time a microphone goes on or a camera goes on, a power tool is in my life. So apologies to everybody for that and, and rest assured that I shall be uh, going off to visit some suitable revenge as soon as this recording finishes. Yeah, Tom might not be with us for the uh, future nope. podcast episodes. Uh, he might be in prison. I might Okay, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this. We hope you found it useful. Thank you, sincere thanks to Daisy Christodoulou for giving us this wonderful book. Uh, Little did she know how important it would be in the current climate. Um, And we will see you all again in two weeks' time. That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast, presented by Emma Thayer, Tom Breeze and the omnipresent man with a pressure washer. Today's book review is all about Daisy Christodoulou's book, Teachers vs. Tech, published by OUP. We also mentioned an article entitled The Binge Breaker by Bianca Bosca, published in The Atlantic. Thanks for listening to our thoughts, and additional thanks to the Cardiff Met colleagues from the Initial Teacher Education Book Club who appeared in the episode, Dr Judith Neen and Rian Mulligan. We'll be back in a fortnight when I will have cut the electricity to the whole of campus in an attempt to get some peace and quiet. In the meantime, take care and enjoy teaching. 